So for those who are tuning in today, reading or listening, just a quick recap. For the last few weeks, uh, Jeff and I have been talking about the macroeconomic environment in which business leaders find themselves. We spent a session talking about the rising costs of capital, the demands of talent in the current labor market and how those have evolved over time, and what it takes to actually drive growth in the current environment. And with each of those three things creating constraints and demands on a business, we've been talking about what leaders should do. These are fairly unprecedented conditions. And Jeff generously and with a lot of sincerity shared a personal health journey that he's been going through in our last conversation, where he talked about not trying to put a single playbook solution in place, because as we all know, for for many health issues, there isn't just one right solution, but putting a system in place, a system that would allow him to experiment and learn what would allow him to pursue great health despite the challenges that he was facing. And that system is something we talk about a lot at Talentism. How do we create a system for continuous learning and compounding on that learning for leaders who are trying to do something unprecedented? We'll continue that conversation today, but as Jeff and I were just preparing for this session, he mentioned he had something important to to bring up. So I'm going to pause and I'm going to let Jeff take it away. Yeah, thanks, Angie. So I wanted to start today's discussion about learning with an apology. So last week or the week before, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the timing of, about when this comes out, as the world now knows, Silicon Valley Bank failed. And its failure caused a massive set of ripple effects and pain throughout a community that I'm a part of and that I care about deeply. And in thinking about that and thinking about both how that affected me and affected talentism and affected the people we support and care about, I realized that the most important thing I could do after the immediate triage of ensuring we had capital was to step back and reflect and understand what part I played in that. Of course, I'm just a very small person in a very big system, and Silicon Valley Bank is uh, much, much larger than any particular decision I made. And yet, I think it's important for me to just offer a quick reflection on that. In 1997, when I started my first venture-funded startup, Silicon Valley Bank was the bank we used. They were an incredible resource. And as most uh, many people have reflected upon now, especially back then, no, insane, no sane banker would speak to you. Only Silicon Valley Bank was there to take your deposits and write you a line of credit and, and be there as a partner for you. Um, in what during that time was a very scary time. Uh, you know, startups were smaller, the funding was much harder to come by, cost of capital was much higher. And it was just even a more insane act to start a company back then than it is now, although to be clear, it's still pretty insane. So uh, I, I was there in the relatively early days using Silicon Valley Bank, depending upon them, and I grew to take them for granted. I grew to take it for granted that they would be there. They became sort of the background noise and expectation that I had of what a startup environment was. And nine years ago, over nine years ago, when I started Talentism, many of the customers, early uh, customers that Talentism attracted were funded and, and supported by Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm not sure that Talentism would be here today if Silicon Valley Bank hadn't been there for them. 
sometimes I think even more so than the venture capitalists that supported them. And so I came to grow, uh, I came to grow a sense of sort of entitlement that Silicon Valley Bank was a part of this community, that it was going to be there to support us. And as such, as with anything we come to take for granted, I didn't invest attention into figuring out whether they were managing their capital correctly, they were managing risk correctly. I didn't take into account whether they were well managed overall. I didn't take into account or pay attention about whether um, they were doing the appropriate things to continue to support the community. And I didn't do the appropriate things when things got bad and certain parties caused a run on that bank. Whether they believe they were right in causing a run on the bank or not, only they will have to evaluate, but they certainly made things riskier for all of us. And in that, I wasn't there. I wasn't there to help with that situation. I was completely focused on talentism. I was completely focused on our local clients, first the clients who owed us money, and second the clients who did their banking there. Uh, and I wasn't paying attention to the bigger picture or standing up for Silicon Valley Bank or engaging in behaviors that now I think I would have honored myself for. I was much more locally focused. And so with that, I just wanted to start with that apology. Huh. One of the things we do at Talentism is we uh, recognize and, and we know when we're feeling an emotion. And I'm right now feeling surprised because <laughs> that's not where I thought we were headed with today's conversation. I wouldn't be surprised if, if folks reading or listening are kind of thinking, okay, that's not where I thought we were going either. So what is having you start today with that apology? And, and I think listeners might be thinking, you know, Jeff acknowledged he's sort of a, a small fish in a big system. What has you wanting to focus there? Last week, we talked about me going through an existential event, a literal life or death event. And we reflected on that. And we talked about how when you're in that place, when things change radically and your entire mental model of how the world works becomes upended, you have to turn to learning. You have to learn your way to potential and to success. And the thing that all learning starts with is personal responsibility. You can't learn anything you don't own. And I think that uh, when I reflect back upon all the many, many founders I've worked with, the many investors I've worked with, the single attribute that differentiates the people who have learned successfully versus those who haven't learned are their ability to accept their reality and then seek to change it. And in accepting that reality, the fundamental truth is they have to seek self-acceptance. What is difficult about me coming on this podcast and apologizing for Silicon Valley Bank is while I'm writing that and I'm saying that, every neuron in my brain is telling me this doesn't make any sense. Not only am I a small fish in a big pond, I'm also, uh, I didn't even bank with Silicon Valley Bank. We're not financial advisors. Uh, we're, we weren't, uh, talentism wasn't investors. We're outside the capital system. What the hell am I doing taking responsibility for something around Silicon Valley Bank? It makes no sense. And yet it makes sense if I care about being better. It makes sense if I care about meaning because I care about the startup community. 
I care about the people who come to this community to try to unleash their potential and through their products and services and hard work and dedication, make the world a better place. And I can't care about those people. I can't care about that system if I don't care about all the parts of it. And Silicon Valley Bank was a critical part of it. And so I took them as a utility. I took them as something that was just to be, as I said, taken for granted. And if I don't see that clearly and see how and why I was sort of disconnected from that, I can't learn anything from it. And if I can't learn anything from it, that was all waste. Everybody's pain and suffering, everybody's feeling of loss and just complete aloneness, that was all for naught. So how many people have to suffer for me to take the learning seriously? Hopefully not a lot. And so I have to take personal responsibility to start the journey of learning. And when I think about what I'm seeing out there at large in the, in the you know, fights that are now uh, inevitably beginning, the finger pointing, the, it was the regulators. No, it was the venture capitalists. No, it was, the, it was some of the venture capitalists. No, it was you know, all the inevitable finger pointing. The one thing I don't see anybody doing is taking responsibility. And I'm not here passing moral judgment on those people. Of course, they're not taking responsibility. They all see themselves as a small fish in a big pond. Every system is much bigger than the human who exists within that system. But until someone takes responsibility, nobody's going to learn anything. And if we don't learn anything, we're not going to get better. And if we don't get better, we're not going to unleash our potential. So that's why I started there. It's critical. I accept responsibility so I can start the learning. Wow. That, there was a, there's a really profound kernel in there. And so I just want to, I'm digesting as you speak. And so I just want to, um, I just want to see if I can break it down for myself and, and maybe it'll be useful for others. I think what I'm hearing you say is it's very easy to look at something that seems big and intractable where others are involved. And, and in fact, oftentimes where it seems like others are bigger players, right? They bear more of the sort of causality and just be, feel angry or disappointed and probably also a little helpless because you feel like you're standing on the outside of it. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that actually the way in, the wedge to be able to do something about it is to take whatever angle of personal responsibility is available. If you care about it, then there's some responsibility at least to understand, to learn and understand. And so that first step is in taking responsibility. Hey, I'm not outside of this. I'm a part of it. I'm causally related to what's going on. I'm part of a system. I have an impact on that system. And so in order to be able to take any next step, the first step is responsibility. And I think I'm hearing you say that that responsibility is the opening of a door to learning what's going on here. Yes, um, that's that, right. That, that feels pretty powerful and it, uh, I, uh, it's smacking me between the eyes uh, in relation to some um, not so nice things I've said about some uh, governors of some states working with their legislations to pass some laws. Uh, and anyhow, that's, a, that's another podcast. <laughs> Well, no, but so two things. This is really important. So first of all, you brought up the concept of helplessness. 
And second, you brought up the concept of like people are doing things that other people disagree with. So let's talk about both those things. Let's talk about helplessness. There are times where helplessness is the logical response to what is happening around you. In other words, we are all uh, participants in a system, but also victims of a system that is much bigger than us. And I use that word victim, not in the weak and helpless sense of that word, but in the sense of forces acting against us, upon us and against us that are hard for us and bad for us, and we have no control over them. And it's important to understand that I'm saying in personal responsibility, I'm not saying that if you, uh, if you experience racism, the racism is your responsibility. That is not what I'm saying. It's a racist system, and it's acting upon you, and it's acting against you. And it's easy to feel helpless in the midst of that. As a matter of fact, it's probably a sensible sort of reaction to the enormity of that thing. But what helplessness does is it removes our agency and it removes our ability to learn and improve. When we feel helpless, we give up. And when we give up, we can't see inside of what's happening the gift or the benefit that's being delivered to us. And sometimes it takes a long search. It takes a long time to figure out what that benefit is. When I got the, diagno the health diagnosis, I did not walk out of the doctor's office and say, thank goodness, Woo, can't believe I got that gift. I think maybe intellectually, just because I've tried to habituate this way of thinking over almost 50 years, I think maybe like intellectually I got there a week later and maybe three months later to actually start to feel because I was, I was practicing the system and building the system to actually start to feel like, wow, there was a real gift in here. But I don't wake up every day thinking, you know, whatever or whoever may exist that uh, I got diabetes. Diabetes sucks. Having to worry every day about what I eat sucks. Having that act upon me sucks. Wanting to go back to my parents and say, genetically, why'd you give this to me? Or you know, why'd you raise me in a food environment where I prize the, built these habits and prize these foods? There's so many people I want to blame for what happened to me. I get that. Of course, of course. We are physiologically designed. We're evolutionarily designed to have that feeling. It makes sense to have that feeling. But the thing I was describing in the podcast last week is until I said, okay, I can own this. I can't own everything that happened in my past because I didn't do everything that happened to me in the past. And I can't own this whole health system. I didn't put a McDonald's on the corner and I didn't like bring me to McDonald's at the age of 12 and teach me that having a Big Mac was a reward. I didn't do any of that stuff, but that's just the system. That's just what's happening around me. And I can't let that thing, I can't let that system rob me of agency and a commitment to improve. And once I took that commitment to improve and to get what I could out of this so that it could, I could use that as fuel for improvement and, and getting better, then things turned around. And, and that comes from personal responsibility. The second thing you said about the, the governors and yeah, listen, there are people in the world who have very different opinions about what should happen in what values to have and what is right and wrong, et cetera. 
But the much, much bigger problem in the world is that people are feel lost and afraid and confused and they don't get help and they don't feel connection except from the people who are hurt and confused for the same reason. And they get together and they form a little certainty pod. And in that certainty pod, they get, uh, they get a self-righteous boost that then enables them to go out and attack others. And so we start to form us versus them coalitions and warring factions. I can have compassion and understanding for people I bitterly disagree with. I can have compassion and understanding for people I bitterly disagree with. It's okay. And there's a lot of things that practically, again, when I take that stance, when I take personal responsibility for my reaction to what they're doing, not responsibility for what they're doing, and not responsibility for how that hurts others, because that's their gig, that's not mine, but personal responsibility for how I'm reacting to that, then I find a path to success. Then I find a path to success. There was a beautiful TED talk given by somebody who had been, uh, it was a woman who had been raised in the Westboro Baptist Church, the famous church that shows up with their hate-filled placards at, uh, at funerals of veterans and in other places. And it, they quite literally are the epitome of hate. The, I mean, this group, when you think of like the public and proud epitome of hate, the Westboro Baptist Church has to be right up there. And this, this woman grew up, her father was the leader of that church. She grew up in that church. And she talked about how she believed so passionately in everything they said. Of course she did. She was raised in that environment. She had no exposure to any contradictory information, any other points of view. And every time someone came and told her she was bad, she was evil, she was what was wrong in the world, it further strengthened her resolve to commit to those belief systems. And the TED Talk, if you get a chance to view it, I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, but we should uh, maybe put it in the notes. The TED Talk is her saying, hey, listen, I'm now outside that system. I can see clearly that what the best Westboro Baptist Church does is hate-filled and wrong and terrible. I couldn't see it then. I can see it now. How did that change happen? How did, we de- how did she deal with that? She dealt with that because people had compassion to continue to have a conversation with her. And so I don't think we have to understand fully the values and points of view of everybody. But if you truly care not just about winning, but about achieving the potential of what we can do together, then compassion and openness is the way to approach that. It's by far the most effective means of winning the long-term debate. And what I would say is that has to start with personal responsibility. You have to say, I say, I talk to leaders about this all the time. It's okay to be scared, not to be a total Star Wars geek here, but like fear leads to hate. Fear leads to anger, leads to hate. Fear is what causes the separation between us, not a clear understanding of the differences between us, but a fear that what the other person represents is standing for, advocating for, will hurt us in some way, limit us in some way, affect us negatively in some way. 
that fear becomes the start of the division because the fear is confusion. And so you have to sit there and say, hey, listen, I'm afraid. This scares the shit out of me. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to say that because in saying that, you actually have equipped yourself to have the agency to do something about it. Where if you say that person is sucks and screw them and I hate them, what are you going to do about that? (laughs) You're not going to change them with that attitude. You're not going to do anything to actually make anything better. You're just going to gather with other people who feel like you do and you're going to get each other really ginned up that you're right and they're wrong. And meanwhile, the problem gets worse. And so I understand why that's comforting. I understand why we need that affinity. I'm not judging it. I'm saying if you care about potential, if you care in the moment of existential crisis, when we truly are uh, dealing with big, profound issues, you care about learning into that and figuring out how to make it better, you have to start with you and you have to start with your personal responsibility. I think um, what is really landing for me, Jeff, is um, in moments where an individual might feel that they're looking out and they are seeing uh, or experiencing systemic bias, it's outside of them, it feels too hard to change, or looking at bad actors, people whose intentions they just can't fathom the feeling can can it can feel frustrating it can feel isolating and it can feel like how could i ever solve this problem i can't change something bigger than me or i can't build a bridge to that person because of what they are like and and the subject of both of those statements is outside of the individual who's having that feeling of isolation or hopelessness or frustration or disgust how could i fix the system uh, sorry, the object of the sentence, or how, or how could I build a bridge to that person? And I think what you're saying here is, of course, you can't change a system and you can't change somebody else who's not you. So what the only thing that leaves left, <laughs> it's a logic puzzle. <laughs> the only thing that leaves left is you yourself. And so if that's the case, then uh, where's the place to go to? And um, and it, and it can feel so counterintuitive in a moment of frustration or, or anger or despair um, to try and go to compassion. But I, I actually experience this with my clients so often, of course, not talking about sort of, you know, the, the, the biggest issues that plague our society, but talking about their own experiences on their teams, you know, CEOs with members of their executive teams. I'm thinking to themselves, like, how could I fix this problem? The person sitting across from me isn't making any sense. They don't think about it the way I think about it. And so often it comes back to, okay, well, how could I try and understand them? How could I come from a place where I seek to be more open-minded about what's happening to them? And in fact, what's happening to them because I happen to be their boss. So anyhow, I, I appreciate your framing of this, uh, and, and I'll throw it back over to you. Yeah, I love So let, let's make that pivot onto the work thing. I know this sounds like very grand sorts of maybe Buddhist-inspired thinking. To me, it's the most practical path to excellence and to becoming better. The most practical path. Now, let's go through and talk about why. So let's take a client situation, a situation I recently went through. 
talking to a CEO, a startup CEO, founder CEO, and the person, let's call them uh, Janice. That's not their name, by the way, but let's call them Janice. So Janice says to me, you know, my uh, chief marketing officer, Pete, he really is terrible at his work. He's really awful. And I said, really? Tell me why. Well, he's late on everything. He doesn't make any, you know, like he doesn't get in sync with me. Janice read off this sort of litany of, of what I would call second order types of things. Like you're, you're confused in an interaction and then you start saying, okay, well, this is, this is why that interaction is bad. And I said, uh, I said, okay, well, so let, let's assume, assume for a minute that Pete is terrible. Um, what are you going to do about it? And she said, well, I'm going to have to, I have to keep Pete around for three months while I start a search in quiet, uh, you know, a sort of stealth search. And then eventually I'm going to have to let Pete know, but then I'm probably have to pay him a fair amount of money to stick, have him stick around so he can do the transition to the new CMO. Uh, and then, you know, I'm probably going to have to pay him pretty well because he's a good, he's a big name and in the marketing world and et cetera. And I said, okay, well, like, let's just put all that, let's add up all that money. What, what's all that money together? What's that budget? She made up, I mean, we went through it and let's say it's 500,000 bucks. Um, that wasn't the number, but let's say it's 500,000 bucks. I said, okay. I said, now let's talk about the attention. I mean, your attention is the most valuable thing you've got. Where you point your attention is where the company goes. And it sounds like these interactions with Pete are stealing your attention. Like every time you talk about Pete, it's an hour of our conversations that are lost. And that hour is one of only 168 you have in a week to actually achieve your goals, improve yourself, and move the company forward. So this is expensive. How many hours do you think we're going to be in Pete land, uh, you know, before he leaves? And let's say we added up, it was, I don't know, several hundred. I said, okay, so several hundred units of the most valuable resource you have, $500,000. Wow, this is expensive. And Jenna said, yeah, it's terrible, terrible. And I said, well, why do you think you got to this spot? Janice went off and said, well, you know, I trusted other people. They, they told me Pete was good. He's not really good. And uh, I just, like, we are growing so fast. And my investors were all over me that I had to get moved faster to the next round. And that they, would, they wouldn't have confidence in me if I didn't hire a CMO. Uh, I just was, like, caught up in the situation. And, uh, and, you know, let's just face it, like I, I didn't do a good job, but I was under all these pressures. I said, okay, so, so what have you learned about this? She said, well, you know, money's tighter now. And so I just got to be a lot more careful about what I, how I hire. I said, okay, careful in what ways? And she said, well, I just got to spend more time with them. I got to figure out things ahead of time, et cetera. I said, so let me get this straight. You made a mistake. You're confident it's a mistake. That mistake has already cost you a lot, lost productivity, attention, et cetera. In the future, it's going to cost you half a million dollars and several hundred hours of your attention. And the only value you got out of all of that was you learned that you got to do this better next time. Take more time, ask more questions. She said, yes. I said, okay, 
So now I think we got that picture. Now, would it surprise you that I know Pete a little bit? And she said, no, you know, I know you know a lot of our executive team. You work with our executive team. I said, yeah. I said, would it surprise you to know that Pete has, um, has recently lost a family member? Recently had a death in the family. And Janice said, yeah, that, that would surprise me. I said, How, you know, it seems to me you've been talking to me about five weeks, six weeks about Pete's performance. I said, it turns out that actually is the period of time in which Pete's been struggling with this, been struggling with this person with a health issue towards the end of their life and then, you know, lost this person. I said, did, did you know that? Janice said, no, no, actually I didn't. I said, how have you ever... Janice yourself suffered a loss of that kind. She said, yeah, actually I have. I said, what, what was your performance like during that period of time? Said, it was terrible. I couldn't pay attention to anything. I couldn't pay attention to work. I, I quite literally was completely lost during that time. I said, okay. And how did the people around you react to that? How did they, you know? And she said, well, actually it was really lovely. They gave me a lot of grace. They gave me a lot of space. I said, all right. I said, so which is more likely that Pete, after having gone through a terrible personal situation and while going through a terrible personal situation, was in a hole, afraid to communicate to you, and his performance dipped as a result, and that is leading you to a bunch of false conclusions about his fit for role and his capacity for performance. And really, the root of this is, you're a bad manager. You weren't, you weren't sensing what was really going on. You weren't asking any questions about what was behind, why Pete was struggling. You put more pressure on him when, when things started to drop. You didn't ask questions to investigate. So which is more likely that Pete suddenly, over the last six weeks, became so bad that it's worth half a million dollars and 300 hours of your time and ongoing conflict and your bad performance because now you're distracted by Pete, or that over the last six weeks, you just failed Pete as a manager. Which is the, more, the better path to, to learning? And she said, well, clearly it's the, the manager. I said, how much time is it going to take you to fix this? She said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you that. It'll take you one hour and zero dollars. It'll take you one hour and zero dollars to fix this because you got to sit down with Pete and you got to take responsibility for being a bad manager. And you got to say, Pete, I realize I haven't been telling you I'm afraid. I'm afraid because you're a critical member of this team and I've seen your performance drop the last six weeks. That confused me. That frightened me. And rather than sitting down and talking with you and asking if you were okay and what was going on, I developed all sorts of stories and narratives inside about who you are and what you're doing and why you're doing it. And during that time, because I developed those narratives and therefore those mental models, I started treating you differently. And as I treated you differently, I started excluding you from things. I started turning up the intensity on you in ways that I'm sure weren't helpful. And I can only imagine that the last six weeks have been miserable. Pete, I'm so sorry. What's been going on? Because even apart from that, I think you've been struggling. I'd love to understand why. Just say that. She did. She took that advice. She did. They had a beautiful meeting. 
Pete's performance over the next two weeks, because we track these things through our system, went up. Of course it went up. Pete was in fear. He was in confusion. He was lost. All he needed was someone to say, I want to understand. That's all he needed. That is literally a cost-free exercise, but this CEO was willing to spend half a million bucks and 300 hours of their time to avoid that conversation. Setting ourselves up in opposition to others, buying into our own narratives about good and bad, believing that other people are against us is inefficient. It's ineffective. And if you really care about learning, and you care about preserving capital, and you care about making things better when you have a need for talent, a need for growth, and a need for capital preservation, it's time to understand that personal responsibility starts with you, and it's the shortest path to learning. Jeff, that's really powerful. And um, as you were speaking, you know, one of the things I was trying to do is put myself in the position of some of my clients who might be listening. And I found myself thinking, well, you know, this story, it's extenuating circumstances. Pete had a death in the family. In, in my circumstances, it's, it's not about somebody's performance dropping temporarily because they're dealing with a difficult personal situation. In my circumstances, it's actually because I have underperforming leaders. And it, it raised for me a client who's working through this right now, who um, if you don't, if you don't mind, I'll I'll share the anecdote because I I think it might help and it might compound the point for folks. Yeah, who's uh, a founder um, of a of a large um, of of a growing company, and who finds herself in a position where, in order to expand, she needs to hire folks who can move the company into new markets, and she's really struggling. She's struggling to hire people who can do something she hasn't done before people who operate differently than she does. And one of the things she's, she's been telling herself in our conversations is, well, there, when we look at problems, we see them so differently, right? There's a particular country manager that she's hired and she's saying, well, he just doesn't see when clients are giving clear signals. And so I asked her, well, what do you do in those moments? And I say, well, I, I, I have to take the reins back because we can't lose those clients or we can't afford not to expand with those clients. We can't afford not to make those sales. And so I said, well, uh, okay, so if I'm this new country manager who's just finding my footing and who thinks differently from you and who solves problems differently from you, and every time you see something that doesn't make sense to you, my experience as your country manager is you take the reins back. What do you think that feels like? How do you think I'm going to perform as your country manager? And there was this aha moment in the conversation where, you know, there was no extenuating circumstance for the country manager, but this CEO recognized that his performance could be materially affected by her involvement. And I think the powerful thing there was not that she, she said, oh, I have to butt out because it's not really an option to just sort of stand at a distance and see how it goes for a long time. The company doesn't have the capital to to sort of do that very long-term experiment. But actually to say to her country manager, hey, I recognize the way that I've been operating could be undermining. 
And it comes from a place for me of never having been able to do this well before, to set somebody else up for success who's not like me. And so when you were speaking, it brought to mind a similar situation and one that maybe feels just a little bit more every day for folks. Yeah. So it's a beautiful example. So let's go through it. So we've been talking about personal responsibility. Personal responsibility is incredibly hard because it has to start with self-acceptance. And self-acceptance is the scariest thing a human being can do. It takes more courage to accept yourself than it does to do anything else. And the root of a lot of problems that managers go through is a lack of self-acceptance. And the lack of self-acceptance comes from a fear of insufficiency. So the first thing in your story is the self-acceptance of the CEO, of the executive you're working with, that they don't know how to do this. How incredibly scary is that? To say, I am responsible for something I don't know how to do. When we talked two weeks ago about this new land, these like after 40 years of low interest rates, we got high interest rates, but we got labor disruptions and we've got growth disruptions and all these things going on. And you're in this strange new land and you've got no playbook. So you have to learn into the playbook that makes sense for you to navigate that. What we were saying is you first have to look at yourself in the mirror and say like, it's on me. I am responsible for charting the path out of this jungle, but I don't know what I'm doing. And so you have to start with that self-acceptance. The second thing you have to, the self-acceptance creates an opportunity for personal responsibility. The personal responsibility takes the form of a, of a behavior that Angie, you know all too well, we practice it here at Talentism every day, called SWM or Start With Me, which is how you as a leader or anybody who's a member of a community or an enterprise comes to a conversation with a recognition of where they're at, what's happening to them, how they feel about it, and gap to goal. So in your example, the gap to goal is, I don't know, there's a couple of things I don't know as CEO. I don't know how to hire country managers. I don't know how to manage country managers. And I don't know how to figure out whether a country manager is working well or not. I don't know. And in absence of that self-knowledge, in absence of the self-acceptance that leads to that self-knowledge, what are you going to do? You're going to freak out every time something happens that doesn't comport exactly with your mental model of how it should work. When the country manager doesn't do exactly what you expect, even though you probably haven't really communicated what you expect, when the country manager doesn't do what you expect, you have confusion. You expect one thing, you experience another. The gap between the two is confusion. Confusion is a physiologically uncomfortable response to a potential threat in the environment. It's an unproductive response from a learning perspective. And so you have to figure out what to do, but you're not really paying attention to yourself. You're so, you're so deep in your belief that you're right that you immediately go and pull back the reins. You have a autonomic habituated response to a threat reaction where you just go pull back the reins. No learning, no experimentation. You are literally setting yourself up for failure, not just the failure of scale, i.e. you can't do everything, nor will you successfully only hire people who are just like you, but failure to learn. 
failure to actually figure out all those things you don't know and how to get better at them. You don't know whether the country manager's approach is better than yours. There are certain things you probably do know. Your client does know. Your client probably knows their, her clients better than the country manager knows those clients. That makes sense. But she only knows them within a certain context. She knows them in the context of what she's like and what they're like together and that period of growth for a company. She only knows them in that sort of context. And when the context shifts, she's out of her depths, as we all are. And so you have to learn into that. So I think your coaching was excellent to open up, the, to open up your client's mind about everything that they may be missing. And I think your coaching was excellent to get them to take some personal responsibility and to start with them. But the real crux of the matter after that is going to be, how do you run small experiments? How do you figure out who's going to be best to goal when you don't know? How are you going to figure out whether the country manager has a better approach or not? You can design that experiment. You could design a one-week one week sprint where you could say, go pick the most trusted client, uh, client in that environment, call them up and say, I'd like to have you deal with this person. I need your partnership to actually help me see whether they're going to be good. And I bet your client would love that. But your client would be like, yeah, of course I'm willing to help you on that. Have the country manager take a, take a leap at it. See how it goes. You're safe. It's not going to ruin the account. You've already set expectation with the leader, with the client you're working with, that they're helping you with this. All bad outcomes are good outcomes. And so there's ways you can actually learn into this. You can experiment and learn in. And in that, you create safety so the country manager can actually learn with you. And more importantly, you can learn yourself. Because it may be that you've set up a business that is so peculiar and so unique that really there are only unicorns who can sell. Those businesses exist. Okay, maybe you set that business up, but you don't know that for sure. And you would have to go out and get evidence to figure that out and to differentiate between the fear you have of people not doing exactly what you've done, believing that what you've done is why you're successful and, and here today. To be clear, that's usually not true. We can go through that. Or you can actually step back and say, okay, I need to keep evolving and need to keep learning. Self-acceptance leads to personal responsibility. Personal responsibility takes the form of start with me. Start with me opens up the field to create experiments which require creativity, which happen better in safety than in accusation. And you can learn faster together than this whipsaw, it's all yours, no, I'm taking it back, it's all yours, no, I'm taking it back, which may or may not lead to some short-term success, but definitely leads to no learning. Mm. I think um, this particular scenario, the one in which the leader feels they need to know it all, or at least project that they know it all, in order to inspire confidence and create followership. Um, is one we hear and we encounter so often. And I hear you suggesting a very contrarian approach, which is expose the fact that you as leader don't know it all and use that starting point as strength to create openness, to create safety with the people you're trying to create followership with. Because if you go the I know it all path, eventually you'll be exposed <laughs> and you'll create an unhealthy dynamic in which that fear comes up 
that fear comes up and you feel like you need to take the wheel, but you're not sure you yourself are going to get it right. And there's no actual resolution around whose path is actually going to help us win here. And so I hear you saying instead in those moments where you feel the need to project, I know it all, I know how to do this, I know how to lead you, actually lean into the I don't know because that creates the room for experimentation. That creates the room to say, okay, let's learn together what is the right approach here. That's right. Courage is strength. If the ultimate courage is acknowledging that you don't know, then the ultimate strength is acknowledging you don't know. Every leader who you, a listener or a reader, is inspired by that's historical, not the current crop of misfits, but who is historical, has stood by the, I don't know, but we'll get there together. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. I don't know how we'll get there, but we'll get there together. These are all statements of, I don't know in this point of time, an existential crisis, exactly what to do. The situation is too big. It's too hairy. It's too novel to have any sort of confidence or arrogance that there is a clear path to success. Instead, I am committed to a way of doing things. I'm committed to the courage of leadership of how we are going to together create that future. And in that moment, you are unleashing potential and you are not seen as weak. We have been brought up in this environment that teaches us, especially men, that if you say you're wrong or you say that you don't know, you are weak. When you hide from that, you are weak. That is the ultimate weakness. And everybody who understands that, that you have that, that arrogance born of the fear of acknowledgement of I don't know, anybody who understands human beings can take advantage of you at that point in time. It is the ultimate stress point and failure point of all conflicted relationships. So I just think courage is strength. And what it takes is courage of saying, uh, like, I don't know, but I do know how to learn. And I do know how from that learning to succeed. And that's the path. That is the path of strength. There were a few, um, there were a few, I don't know if paradox is the right word, but sort of um, surprising conjunctions (laughs) in today's conversations that maybe we can just highlight as we leave off. And so um, the, f- the first one I heard you say is in the, in the moments when one feels helpless because the thing that is angering them or upsetting them feels outside of them, that the path to change is actually through personal responsibility. I think that's a really powerful one because the, even when in the face of systemic injustice or in the face of bad actors, it might feel like, how could I possibly change this? And why should I? It's not my fault. The only lever for real change for learning in that situation is personal responsibility, is starting with what is my role? What can I learn? I think that was powerful. I think another one that you shared was it all starts with uh, radical self-acceptance. And I think that when we talk about self-acceptance, especially when we're talking about, you know, flaws and, and and a leader who might be taking responsibility for what they don't know or or for situations that they're creating that feel, um, you know, difficult for the people around them might feel like, oh, are we letting that leader off the hook? I'll never change. I am the way I am. I've been doing this for decades. 
And I think what I hear you saying is radical self-acceptance is definitely not about letting oneself off the hook. It's about saying, this is what I'm like, now what? And I think that's the key, putting those two things together. This is what I'm like, self-acceptance. Now what? Personal responsibility um, is the basis of the practice that, that you described that we, that we do at Talentism, start with me, right? It's not a selfish thing. It's about recognizing the lens you bring to a situation and the impact that you create and then deciding, okay, now that I understand that, what's a productive way forward for me and the people I want to get to the finish line with? Um, I, I found this chat uh, really illuminating. So I thank you for it, Jeff. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, uh, Angie. I always love these conversations with you. Thank you.